0: Thank you, worship team. Appreciate it. Well, good morning again. Hope you got your Bible ready and outline in front of you and, and open text open to Philippians chapter 1 as we uh, get back to our series, The Center of Joy, with our message entitled, Only One Thing. Only one thing. You know, Paul has challenged the Philippians. As we jump back in to defend the gospel, to proclaim the gospel in our passage last week. And this week, he wants us and he asks us our, to have our lives highlight or adorn the gospel, you might say. Our lives, how we, how we live. As we wrap up chapter 1 today and head into chapter 2, which gets into some real familiar, probably, passages. And next week, even one of my favorite passages in all the Bible about Jesus next Sunday. Today we're going to hear Paul's challenge to the Philippians to be strong, to be courageous, to be bold and yet humble, all the while maintaining unity, a really clear unity. A really a good message for any Sunday, but even on Father's Day as we talk about being courageous and bold, yet humble, gentle and loving. The Christian's call has always been one to live life courageously and yet love humbly. And only the gospel really allows us to do that. Here's why. It frees us to be bold because we know we're secure in Christ. We can't lose it or be lost. It frees us to be bold because we know we're secure in Christ. It makes us humble because we know we've been saved by grace alone, right? On anything we've done or earned or merited. All of those things. The gospel makes possible bold humility. Bolder and yet more humble. Those things don't seem to go hand in hand. Or in our culture, boldness might be paired with uh, self-confidence or self-assurance. But the gospel makes bold humility possible. So this morning we're going to see that. How is that possible? As Paul has a desire to to prepare the church, to get the church ready by challenging them to live a life worthy of the gospel by standing and striving in unity and humbly loving one another. So as I said, grab that outline. Hopefully you have it open. I hope that helps some of you that are uh, learned by writing and learn by taking notes. If it does, grab it, use it. Hopefully you got your text open as well uh, to Philippians 1.27. Well, Two years ago, I was all set to travel on a missions trip uh, to Haiti to teach there with a friend of mine who's been, been a lifelong pastor, and he is a, a, a kind of retiring later years, and yet he's been running this, this pastoral seminary in Haiti, and we were heading out to go teach some classes there to local pastors on the ground, and we were about three weeks from departure, three weeks from leaving when I thought, yeah, I'm going to need my passport, Well, I went to look, and I was like, yes, I've got it. And so I looked at the expiration date. Oh, it's like, is it every 10 years, I think? Yeah, 10 years. Kids is five, I think. Adults is 10, and we got it. We were first married, I think, to go on a honeymoon to Ireland. I was like, oh, our 10-year anniversary just passed. Oh, my passport's expired, and I was three weeks away from the trip. So I was in a panic, (laughs) to say the least. Uh, Passport is so important, isn't it? If you're going to travel outside the country, it is the one thing you don't want to leave home without, right? It is the one thing you need to get in and out of the U.S. and into other countries. It is the one thing. I mean, the language on a passport itself conveys the gravity of that. Here's what it says. The Secretary of State of the United States of America hereby requests, so formal, all whom it may concern to permit the citizen national of the United States named herein to pass without delay or hindrance and in case of need to give all lawful... Aid and protection. That passport is important. It gives you the rights and the privileges and the protections of a US citizen abroad. And there's only one thing that proves that when you travel abroad. It's that passport, right? It's got your picture, it's got your your information, it's got the, the seal of approval on it. Well, what did I do? I applied for a rush passport, right? Paid the extra fee. I got it like, I don't know, it was like three days before I was supposed to leave his. I wouldn't have gone on the trip, I guess, because it's the one thing you need. I got the one thing I needed. Well, today we begin there. Paul tells us only one thing, the one thing you need, the one thing that is so important for followers of Jesus Christ. So if he's going to start there, we should listen to him, right? He's going to tell us the one thing. Paul says, we're going to see in our text, this is a must. This is an absolute. You need this like you need a passport when traveling. He really tells us, we're going to see, the model is life after him, who he's made so much of Christ, we've seen already. So much of Christ's work. So much of defending and honoring the gospel while he sits in, in prison. Do you remember that? So this is the one thing. He tells them, be like me. He tells them, here it is, to live a life worthy of the gospel. It's the one thing. He says, live a life worthy of the gospel. Listen to uh, chapter 1, verse 27 again today. Only, he says, only, there it is, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He begins with that word there, only, only. It really means just one thing, one thing. It's so important, he says. This is how you are to live, a life worthy of the gospel. You know, we can't just talk about Jesus and what he did for us, which is the gospel, which is the good news of Christ. Dying for us and raising, Paul's saying we should also live in light of that. In light of that. A life worthy of the gospel, he says. You know, sometimes when I think of the gospel or, or the message of Jesus, I uh, I have had a tendency in my life to think of that message as for those who just don't know Jesus yet. And maybe that's you today. And and if that is you, that message is for you. If that's you today, you need to hear that message. That you're in need of a Savior. That Christ is His name. That He came and He lived and He died a a perfect life and a perfect death on the cross as payment for our sins. And He resurrected, proving that sacrifice. And through faith now, that's available to you. The gospel is for you today if you haven't trusted Christ. But I kind of left it there in my life, in my Christian life. And maybe you've been there too. The gospel's kind of for those who don't know Jesus yet. But the gospel's actually also for somebody who doesn't know Christ, but it's also for the new Christian. But it's actually also for the lifelong Christian. Maybe you've been trusting Christ for decades in your life. It's also for you. You know, I grew up in the church and grew up hearing the message of Christ and maybe you did too. But the first time I thought about this, about 10 years ago, I was actually kind of blown away because I lived in that world where I thought that the message of Christ, the gospel was really for those who don't know him yet. If you know him, you, you move on to the more, the deeper things, the more important things, right? You, you, you kind of know that. You kind of get that. I was blown away when I started kind of thinking about that. As Paul wants us to and he says, only one thing a life worthy of the gospel. Here was a quote from a guy uh, named Tim Keller. He's a pastor at uh, Redeemer Press in Manhattan. Really kind of helped me think through this. He said this, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel's not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it's more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel's not just the ABCs, but it's the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not the the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we actually also make progress in the kingdom. What's he saying? He's kind of saying what Paul's saying. A life worthy of the gospel. The one thing. He's saying we don't move on necessarily to more complex, complex stuff. The gospel's not just my ticket to heaven or my fire insurance. It's not just that. It's the everything he's saying. The gospel is actually how you grow as well. How I grow as well. How we live that life. The gospel. It's what really, it's kind of a buzzword, but that's really what it means when we say a a church or a people are gospel-centered. They realize it's our everything. That's why Paul says live a life worthy of the gospel. He takes us back there. Because of what Jesus has done, we live for him. What that verse is really saying there, he's saying, exercise your citizenship. That's why I thought of passport today. Because the verse is actually saying, exercise your citizenship worthily of the gospel of Christ. He's speaking in terms of being a citizen of something there. You know, we don't carry around a passport, do we, that says, citizen of the kingdom of God, do we? We don't carry that around. That's not the way people know who we are. The way we live our life, Paul's saying. That speaks of our citizenship. That speaks of where our loyalties lie. That speaks of of what we're placing our hope in. Philippi, even the city, which is who this letter's to, the Philippians. Philippi, that city, a city in Greece, you remember? First kind of European church plant that Paul made, where this letter went, was actually considered... A a Roman colony. Not all the cities got to be that. That was a prized thing. Philippi, though, it was considered, it was called like Little Rome, basically. It was a prized designation. If you got that, that was a big deal. That was a citizenship worth wanting. Because when you got it, it meant you were like a little Rome. And they were the powerful uh, nation at that time. You were considered Roman citizens even though you didn't live in Rome. You got all the legal rights. All the protection, all the status, all the privilege of being like you lived in Rome, even though you didn't. That's what they, who they were. And they would have been proud, the people in Philippi that got this letter. They would have been proud to be considered Roman citizens. That would have been the one thing for them. That was their one thing. And Paul says... Your status as citizens of the kingdom of God—that's the one thing. That's the one thing. He says, "Live like that." Well, just as when I travel with that passport, I have those—I have those rights, I have those responsibilities as a U.S. citizen abroad. And the Philippians had the rights and status and privileges, followers of Christ, or uh, even or as um, Roman citizens, even though they didn't live in Rome. As followers of Christ, we have a much greater status with God. But a much greater privilege. But a much greater duty to live in light of that. What did Paul say in Colossians? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so Paul could say, you know, you've been transferred. Yes, you might be a Roman citizen. Yes, we might be American citizens. But he says, you've been transferred to a kingdom another kingdom from darkness to light. So, exercise your citizenship worthy of that gospel Christ. Here it is, that great news of the gospel. Here it is. It doesn't mean we live as citizens to gain that acceptance of that kingdom. So live really good so you can gain that acceptance. No, the good news means you've already been accepted in Christ. So live out of that. That's why it's such good news. That's why it's for us not just to to come to know God, but to live out of that. We live because we've already been accepted into that kingdom. You've already been transferred, Paul says in Colossians. So live in light of that. What does that verse say? He's delivered you. He has transferred you. He has done the work, not you. It's the good news. It's grace. It's the gospel. So live from this new kingdom life worthy of the gospel. He loves you in the gospel, so we love others. He's offered us grace in the gospel. We can extend grace. He's served us. We can serve others. He secures us in the gospel so we can take risks. He's given us so much, so let's be giver of gifts, of our time, even our money. That's what it means that the gospel is A to Z just the ABCs. It's everything. It's everything. So Paul says live a life worthy of the gospel. It's the one thing he says in this verse. But he goes on to give us two concrete ways really that we can live that way. That we can live a life worthy of the gospel. If the one thing is live that life worthy, he gives us two ways which we can live this life worthy of the gospel. The first one's this, we're called to stand a life worthy of the gospel, stand unified and strive together. Look at verse uh, 27-28 again. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for, There it is again, the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. You know, Paul says to them, you know, I think I'm going to get out of prison. Remember, he's writing for prison. He says, I think I'm going to get out of prison. But even if I don't, even if I don't, you can still move forward as a church. Even if I die in prison, he says, you can still move forward as a church. Paul speaks here, how? Of a oneness, of a unity that is stronger because of its parts, because of its people, because of its citizens, a unity that's stronger because of its parts. You know, my children, they love to uh, build with these little magnetic squares. Anybody's kids have them? They're expensive, actually. They're They're really pricey, but they love to build with these little squares, and you put them together, and you can kind of build things. They're magnetized. You know, a couple of them like this are pretty kind of weak. They don't really... Stand that well together, but when they start stacking them together, they can build some pretty, like, pretty neat little towers out of these. A couple of them, they're not very strong. You can maybe get a little, I can get a little square there, but they're not really strong when they're together. But they start putting them together, and as you see in the picture there. They can build some pretty amazing structures out of these little magnet tiles. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying the church, we're more like magnets that stick together, unified. Being built and unified by His Spirit, we're more like those magnets that stick together than just a bunch of kind of individuals bumping up against each other. We're more like magnets stuck together in unified oneness. And He places that unity in the Spirit in this passage here. One Spirit, He says. Because the Spirit of God is the architect The one doing the building, the one making the structure, the one causing us to be born again, living inside us, the one spirit giving us the power to live together as God's family. It's so encouraging. It means that God is the one doing the work here. God is the one uniting us. God is the one making us uh, sticky like those magnets. That's encouraging. So he says, stand firm. Just stand firm if attacks come from the outside against you, church. And like that magnet house there that's stronger when built than just a few of the blocks together, we're strong as we stand unified. There's strength there. What binds us together, though, isn't that we all happen to attend Bethany. What binds us together isn't maybe a common life stage you have in this room. What binds us together isn't even our our common American citizenship, like those uh, Philippians, their Roman citizenship, or anything else. He says it's the one Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that binds us together. That's it. It's God's Spirit working out the gospel in our lives. That's what makes us stick like magnets. Christ purchased us, loved us, saved us, gave us the Spirit. So Paul's saying... Stand firm. That same spirit that raised him from the dead. God will work here. He is working here, and he's going to keep working here. So we stand united. And if we do that, Paul says it's going to play out not only in one spirit, but one mind. One mind in this church, or in the church even, the larger church. One mind, unified in mind, he said It really means our inner life, our emotions, our inner thoughts, our desires, our decisions, there'll be a unity there. Unified in love for each other. Really is what he's saying. You think about marriages. Marriages maybe in the, in the past or maybe even in Paul's time, There sometimes we're a bit more of marriages of convenience or marriage for social climbing. Those can be really cold and lifeless. It's kind of why maybe we don't really do that as much anymore. But relationships in the church as well aren't to be like those kind of marriages, just out of convenience. Or, or social climbing, Paul says there to be spirit-empowered, spirit-led unions of one mind, of one spirit, of, of one purpose. It's really the language of an athletic team or a military movement. The pastors are told, don't use too many sports metaphors. I guess Father's Day would be the day when you could, right? Uh, but uh, it really is that language of an athletic team or a military movement, but one that's full of love, one that's full of love what purpose? We stand unified and strive together side by side, Paul says in verse 27, for the faith of the gospel. But here's the thing. That's our mission. If that's what we're called to, to stand unified for the faith of the gospel, we have to all agree on what the gospel is, don't we? We have to all agree on what it is we're here for. If I was to ask each of you in this room, or if I was to, we were to go out in the street and poll people and said, well, you know, what's the good news of Jesus Christ? What's, what's the gospel? you get a lot of different answers. And we may even in this room. A lot of different answers. You know, one of the first things as uh, is, is pastor here is I'm going to have our leadership read uh, from elders to deacons, deaconesses, and the ministry staff. Uh, we're going to read a little book. You might hear, it sounds kind of simple. But the title is, What is the gospel? What is the gospel? It's a simple little book, but we're going to read it because we have to be in agreement on that, don't we? If Paul says we're living a life worthy of the gospel and we stand together, united for the faith of the gospel, we've got to all be in agreement on what is the gospel. So it's a simple title, but it's a really rich book full of all kinds of truths, so we can all be in agreement. What is the gospel even? Because this is the one thing, the main thing Paul is saying the gospel, and living for it. And if we do this, if we do this as a church, united, standing side by side for the gospel, courage will keep building. And people will see. People will notice. Not necessarily notice us, but Jesus Christ living in and through us. And Paul tells us how that will play out. Look at verses 28 through 30 this morning. When we stand side by side for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. When the church is united, he says, standing side by side, Without fear, he says there. Under persecution, that becomes a sign. Like a signpost, a big glaring, flashing, neon sign in the sky when the church stands united when it faces persecution. Without fear. That's kind of challenging to me to think about that. How easy is it to fall into fear? Or timidity? Or to get a little anxious when you think about your faith? you think about living it out, when you think about making decisions that aren't very popular, can that is that possible? Can you and I live our daily life? Can the church live without fear? The word there actually means don't live like those that are scattered like uh, skittish horses. You ever seen like a stampede in a movie or maybe out on your ranch or farm, a stampede of horses? They just kind of, they just go and they're gone when they get scattered. He says don't live that way. Don't live like those scattered horses that run. Can we really respond like that? If challenges come, can, can you respond that way in your life? I find it so easy in those moments where I want to either stand for the truth or speak something uh, that is truthful or right or stand or speak about Christ and my love for him that I can just get fearful. But here's what Jesus says. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, right? Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, fear God more than man, is what Jesus is saying. Fear God more than man. But you and I will fear opposition. We'll fear opposition from humans, from men and women, if we don't fear and reverence God more. It doesn't mean we fear Him like we cower in fear. It doesn't mean that, but it means we have a reverence. We have an awe for Him doesn't even mean the way we fear some of our earthly fathers and their discipline, sometimes if it's harsh or unloving. It means you know Him and you're secure in Him through Christ. You honor Him. You're secure in Him. You don't have to fear what could happen to you because He's with you. It's that freedom of the gospel that you have acceptance with God that allows you then to stand under the ridicule of someone else or the ridicule of others for our faith. So it gives us the courage to share our faith with someone we've been hoping to talk to, maybe, about Christ. Or how about some of you young people in here? Some of you that maybe are a bit younger face this temptation, maybe more than we do as adults. Some of you that are trying to live out as Christians at your school, day after day. Or some of our kids who are in Sunday school that are trying to live their faith as disciples of Jesus Christ, day after day, there may come times when you have to make a decision, when you have to stand for something that's truthful, when you're being asked to follow people into something that God doesn't honor, doesn't love, or you may be asked to speak about your faith for Jesus Christ. That's when the challenge really comes. Some of our young people face it more than we do on a regular basis. That shouldn't be the case, because we should be around non-Christians and let them see the flavor of our life But our children, many of them, are living that way. And Paul calls us to respond faithfully with a life worthy of the gospel. And when we do, we, you and I, we become a sign. A signpost to the world. He said it there. A signpost to God's coming judgment even, he said. Here's a quote by uh, uh, one theologian. He said, here indeed is conviction of sin.'" a person gripped by the awfulness of eternal loss, it arises from seeing a church stand for Christ. Standing for eternal things, enduring worldly loss and disrepute for the greater riches found in the Spirit and throughout all standing united. Saying, even when we just live our faith, even when we just love one another, and we stand for the gospel together, he says that alone is really one of the greatest things that will convict the world of their need for Christ when they see us not faltering or giving up the faith or abandoning the church or walking away from Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here today, and you're not sure if you know Christ, and you're sitting amongst His people, the church. And you think, how could somebody be so committed to something that they would face loss? Or, or disrepute, have an unpopular reputation. How can they do that? How is that possible? Don't underestimate what God may be doing right now in your heart with that question. Maybe God is asking you to consider the reality of the good news of, of Christ and you've come visiting, and maybe you've been visiting our church for a while. Or watching how these, these strange people live together and love one another, right? Right? Maybe it's God's sign to you this morning. Or maybe personally you've been asking God, uh, or maybe God has been asking you to stand firm in a relationship, to stand firm, to share Christ. Or maybe he's asking you to reconcile in a relationship with another believer in this church or in another one, to reconcile. When we do that, Paul is saying here, people will see. And they will notice. And they will be convicted too that they need a Savior. Look at what it's done to these people. Look how their lives have been transformed. I want that too. But I need what? A Savior? Yes. That's what Paul's saying in his passage. When we live united, we have that impact on the culture, on our neighborhoods, on our city. We live that way. And Bethany Church when we stand together, if conflict comes, and it will, it'll come our way. But when we stand united, it's a sign to those around us. But it's also a sign to us. Did you catch that in his words there? It's a great sign to us when we stand. He says there, God may appoint a season of suffering, he said. Paul says it in verse 29 through 30, like he did for Paul. But as we stand together, joy will fill our hearts. Why? Because when you stand, he says, it's also a sign of our salvation. It's also a sign of God at work in you because we couldn't stand on our own. We couldn't keep this thing going on our own like any church can't. But when we stand, we say, God is working in my life. God is working here in our church. It's a good sign to us. It's one of conviction to those that aren't followers of Christ, but it's a reassurance to us that you are saved. You're safe. And the Spirit's at work in that one mind. So the one thing was to live a life worthy of the gospel. And that first characteristic there was the church is called united to stand together for the gospel from an outside attack. Paul goes on in chapter 2 to give us an even deeper understanding of this worthy life, of this unity inside the church. It's the last point today. We're just calling it the worthy life because he goes on to really hit it up, hit it again in chapter 2. Chapter 2 doesn't necessarily mean that he's gone on to some other topic here because he hasn't. He's saying, I think this is so important. This is so important. I need to talk about it a little more, this worthy life. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, kind of connects us there with that word so, back to the only. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He keeps mentioning that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You can hear that as I read that again. Some of the same language repeated up in those verses we already he already read. Paul's carrying on his discussion of the worthy life. This is so important to Paul, that worthy life of unity. So important to Paul. Did you catch that there? That he can be sitting in prison now, remember, and maybe awaiting his death, awaiting possible trial and execution. And he says, if you do this one thing, even though I'm in prison, I don't know what's going to happen. I may die. If you do this one thing, it will complete my joy, he says. If he can say that, it must be pretty important for the church. His life can be falling apart on the outside, but if he hears this one thing, if he hears this one thing, the church standing unified, it'll complete his joy no matter if his whole life is falling apart. So how does it happen? Let's look quickly how it happens. Here's the first word under that worthy life. Jesus. Hopefully by now, you know we're, we're, we're always going to return there. We're always going to go back to Jesus. Uh, we're always going to talk about him on a Sunday morning because this is how unity happens. Jesus Christ. We first look to Jesus, That's really what verses 1 and 2 in chapter uh, 2 are all about. Look to Jesus. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, he says, if, if, if. But you know that if? It's pretty much hypothetical. Because there is. If kind of makes you think, is that certain if? Well, if there is. No, no, there is. He's kind of saying it kind of tongue-in-cheek. If there's encouragement in Christ, there is certainty. It's certainty. There is encouragement. There is love. There is participation in the Spirit. What Paul is really saying here is that in our life, Christ encourages. God loves, and the Spirit wraps us in the fellowship. Paul's kind of talking about the Trinity there, working in salvation. Son, Father, and Spirit, all working in our lives. All working in the church he's kind of getting back to the gospel there if there's encouragement in Jesus if there's love in God the Father if there's participation in the Spirit he says live this way and Paul always does this he gives us the gospel of grace before he gives us commands he always does that in his letters he talks chapters and chapters and chapters on what is the gospel, who is Jesus then he says therefore now go live this way and he does it again here it's another way of saying gospel-centered, right? Grace, then the commands. Even think about for a minute. Where's the greatest law in all the Bible? Think about it. The Israelites, right, and the Ten Commandments. But you ever thought about this? Before God gave the Ten Commandments, what did He do for them? Delivered them, didn't He? Saved them. Gospel before law, right? Grace before commands. I'll deliver you as my people. I'll save you out of slavery. Now live this way. That's what Paul's saying here again in chapter 2. If there's encouragement in Christ, if there's love from God, if there's unity in the Spirit, now live this way. And there is. If you know that encouragement, that love and that fellowship, he's created that new heart then, that new mind, that new sympathy, that new love, that new, new affection. And what does it do, Paul says? It leads us from Jesus to others. Leads us from Jesus to others. You might see where we're going with this today. Jesus to others. You know, one of the greatest dividers in any congregation, and Paul says it here, rivalry is the word he uses. Rivalry that Paul mentions. Or seeking our own glory, seeking our own way, maybe, our own opinion, our own thoughts, or our own recognition. Seeking self-glory. That's the greatest dividers, Paul says. Rivalry in a congregation. It will tear down. It will destroy. It will crumble. Verse 3. Unity can only come to a congregation by people walking in humility. He says, think of others. Think of others' needs more than your own. Others' successes more than your own. Others' interests before our own. That brings unity because it means we're thinking of ourselves less and others more. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. Harmony, peace with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Did you catch that? Harmony comes from humility. He says it there. Harmony comes from humility. Don't be haughty. Which allows you to think of others. I love how C.S. Lewis Describes humility. Sometimes we think of humility as I'm just gonna have bad self-esteem. I'm gonna think horribly of myself because I'm a wretch, I'm a sinner, and and we are, but that's not how you actually get humble. I love how he described it. He said it's true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. Does that make sense? You get that? It's not thinking less of yourself. God's not just saying to walk around daily beating yourself up because you're a citizen of the kingdom who's loved, who's cherished. True humility comes not just beating yourself up, but just Thinking of yourself less. Which leads us to think of others, doesn't it? is Isn't that what Christ did? We're going to see that next week in our passage. Oh, we're going to see that. It's a beautiful passage. He thought of himself less when he could have come to earth and said, give it all to me. He came and served and died, didn't he? And that's what changes your heart. That's what changes my heart. Not to think of my, uh, less of myself, but to think of myself less and lead me to others. Jesus, others, which does lead us to yourself, our final one, yourself. Each of us, we have a responsibility today. You've heard God's word taught. You've heard the truth. You've heard Paul's call. You've heard it all wrapped up into the gospel, though. We all have a responsibility to take assessment of our own heart and our own life, as we consider today the, the one thing, the worthy life, you have a responsibility. Because as the church moves forward, right, against uh, conflict from the world, as we seek to love others inside, at the bottom of that, we still are made up of people, aren't we? We still are made up of individuals. We're one body, but we're individually saved in knowing Christ. We have to think of ourselves. So if you haven't come to Christ today, here's my question for you. Why not? What's standing in the way? Come talk to me. Come talk to one of our elders. You've got questions. And if you are a follower of Christ, here's our question What part are you playing? What part am I playing in the unity of, of Bethany Church? Or even the unity of the larger church? Let's think all the churches in our area. Where is God asking you to stand firm? Here's another one Where's my pride still remaining? that rivalry is hiding in my heart. It's there. I have it. I have it. It's there. It pops up. The great divider of rivalry and pride. Is And here's the follow-up question. Is it keeping me from serving others? Then we look to Jesus, who we're going to see next week was the most humble of all. In the form of God he was, he is, yet he emptied himself you see what we did there jesus others yourself what's the spell there joy yeah our word there joy jesus other yourself that order too it's kind of it's kind it's simple i know but it, it, it's good jesus others yourself in that order the one thing a life worthy of the gospel that stands unified striving together looking for joy in jesus serving others as we look at ourselves let's pray Father, we come to your word today, the word of truth, the word of hope, the word of life, the word of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has saved and redeemed a people. Paul gave us some challenging words today. To live unified, to live together. Yes, they're challenging, but Lord, there there is hope because we know Christ is raised from the dead and his spirit now, the one that raised him from the dead, lives in us. So lead us forward on this mission at Bethany Church. Lead us forward on this journey. Unite us together in a way so that when people see and watch, they go, what is going on there? The unity and love they have, may it lead them to Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.